Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 27 of Ask the CEO with Avraham Gatile. Today, I'd like to welcome a very special guest, a recognized thought leader in how to maintain relevancy in a rapidly changing world. Her impact has earned her recognition as WSJ Woman of Note, Silicon Valley Woman of Influence, and Boardless Top 20. She's currently the Chief Information Officer at New Relic, a leading digital intelligence platform company. Prior to New Relic, she held multiple leadership positions at VMware, scaling the company from two to six billion dollars. She serves on the board of directors for Vidium, a cloud service which enables people to access all their cloud software accounts with one set of login credentials. It's my honor and pleasure to welcome the one and only Yvonne Wassenaar. Welcome. Thank you so much. (laughs) How's your date going? My day's been great. I have to say, I'm uh, fortunate in the fact that I actually enjoy coming to work, so it's all good. <laughs> well, that's what it's all about, right? Love what you do, and then you don't work a day in your life. Exactly, exactly. Nice. So talking about work, I mean, you know, you're involved in so many different projects. We've got so much to talk about. Uh, I guess we could start with the new relic. What is it, uh, what is it that you do there? Great. Well, let me start with uh, describing what New Relic does itself. Sure. Uh, and then I'll, I'll talk about what I do. So New Relic, from a marketing perspective, we say we're a digital intelligence platform. But really what that means in its most simple context is you don't typically go to a retail branch to do your banking anymore. So what's important is not so much how long are the teller lines or how warm is the coffee. You bank on your phone. And so you want the app to load, you want to know the money transferred, you don't want to wait a long time, you don't want it to time out. And fundamentally, when we say we're a digital intelligence platform, that means as software does more and more of the business that runs companies, we give insight into what that software is doing. So if you're a developer, we help you understand where the errors are happening, the transaction traces to fix them to make sure your software is operating more effectively. And quite frankly, your developers are more effective. And from a business standpoint, we give you insight into what people are doing. And so you can actually quote unquote, see the teller line by looking at what's happening on the mobile app. So that's what New Relic does. And I joined the company around three years ago because I believed in this vision that software is changing the world around us in many powerful ways and that there are going to be new tools and insights that we need from software. So I joined to help scale the company and take it public. Um, I did that, I helped the company think through going from one product to five and multiple geographies and expanding into enterprise. And about a year into that, the company realized, you know, SaaS technology doesn't just run itself. And we were growing so fast that our internal business services couldn't keep up with us. And that's when we thought, gosh, do we need a CIO? I mean, who really needs a CIO? You've got Salesforce, Workday, all these solutions that are just supposed to work. Um, But the reality is they don't just quite work yet, but they work differently than uh, the, the technology did in the past. So I became our first ever CIO here at New Relic And many companies you'll note that have been founded as what I would call cloud-born are putting in place CIOs. So DocuSign put in place one, Okta put in place one, Zora put in place one, Zendesk put in place one, and we're all doing it for the same reason. Functions are great running SaaS solutions when they're point solutions, but when they become cross-company platforms, you need to have a more holistic view You need to be able to understand the architectural trade-offs and how you design and implement those SaaS solutions. And you need to think about the business and data intelligence and how you're going to manage that holistically from a company perspective. So that's what I do. Wow. And, you you know, it's so true what you're saying, just moving back uh, to what you were talking about, um, about data-driven technology and insights. I mean, the market is highly competitive and everybody's going to mobile applications right now. So, you know, it's really fascinating to hear about how, how New Relic is bringing that uh, to the market. Definitely. It's fun. Yeah, cool. So, you know, just a little bit more about the background of New Relic, how, you know, how, how it came about. Yeah, so basically our CEO, Lou Cerny, started a company called Wiley. 
um, which really created the application performance monitoring space. And it was a great experience and he ended up selling it to computer associates. Mm -hmm. But what he realized was that the way they had built the solution, it was somewhat clunky. It was on-prem, it was hard to implement, it required a lot of services. And so he decided um, he'd create a lifestyle business, creating a Ruby performance monitoring system, but to do it in a different way, in a way that was all cloud-based, really simple, um, no need for education, no need for PS, you just download a trial, you fall in love, instantaneous benefit, and off you go. And so that's really how New Relic started. Lou um, wanted to do something, he made some good money and just thought he'd keep interested and busy. And he was blown away by how many people loved it. And we have something we call developer love, and we have a lot of it. Um, I love being the CIO at New Relic because pretty much everywhere I go, I'll talk to somebody and they'll be like, oh, you work at New Relic? Oh, we use your product, we love it. And you love to have customer love, developer love. And that really incented Lou to expand across different languages. So we support seven different languages and expand into not just server-side monitoring, but mobile and um, browser monitoring and so forth. And then ultimately the business insights component of it. So it's really just generically grown out of where our customers have taken us, which has been a lot of fun. Yeah, I imagine it is. So take me through a couple of the different kinds of solutions. So you, you mentioned a, different, a few different categories. So. Um, how would it apply to businesses? Like what would businesses be looking for? Yeah, so there, there's a couple different things. Um, what's interesting is, as I mentioned, as more and more software is running the business, there's a need to get insight into what's happening. And so what we find is developers use our technology to help them develop more quickly, better, and focus on the things that they like. Mm. So they'll run it and they'll be able to say, oh gosh, here's where a lot of time is being spent. Can I make that piece of the functioning more efficient? Or here's where I'm having a lot of error rates. Here's you know, the database call that's timing out. I need to fix something here. So from a developer standpoint, it's giving them the productivity back and the ability to write better software. Because the reality is um, you can solve the same problem with software a million different ways, but they're not all equal. There's different trade-offs. Um, some are better for use cases. Some are better for velocity. Some are better for, you know, just different types of processing or size of processing. Um, so, so it gives developers tools to allow them to do a better job. From an operator perspective, um, we love the world of DevOps, but there's many companies where you've got developers on one side and you've got people who are doing operations over here. There are people who their day-to-day -day job is keeping the shop running, keeping all the software applications and the systems and the networks functioning properly. And there what New Relic does is it gives them insight into the kingdom. They can get alerts, they can understand, they can see when code was released, did the problem happen before that, after that. So it gives them the ability to very easily see the environment across what's going on. Um, and that allows them to more proactively identify issues and more quickly solve them when they arise. Um, a classic example of that is when we recently for the election, they could see the rise in volume. They could see some of their, the components of their applications that weren't performing as well at that high volume and to be able to pull them off so that they were able to give the end customer a seamless experience. So really, really powerful from that perspective. But then as I mentioned, also from a business perspective, what we're finding is traditional companies now need to have digital channels and they need to be able to service customers in new ways. And so we had a, a great customer. Um, they do, uh, they're the, the company that does all the insights into your flights. So you're gonna fly from New York to San Francisco. You wanna know, is it on time or not? Um, they track all of that. And they used our product to understand, wow, we've got three different types of users. It's not just you and I who are looking at one flight because we're actually on an airplane going from point A to point B. They had some people who were looking at 10 or 20 flights at a time. Well, they actually turned out to be the limo drivers and the super shuttles and the car services. And then they had people who were looking at flights who were nowhere near an airport. <laughs> they just- Parents, parents. spouses. 
Yeah. And so they were able to then better understand their users, tailor their offerings and make sure that they had the right package pricing bundles, that they had the right feature functionality, not for one a mass segment, but for these different sub-segments. Well, you know, this is really exciting. And I have to tell you that you instantly connected with me when you started talking about developer stuff, because I started my career as a computer programmer. Uh, not quite sure where that veered off. I ended up in the telecom world and, and uh, now I'm a cloud communications provider. But you, know, you instantly connect with me because I remember back in the days when I was writing code for IVR systems. Well, that's actually how I got into telecom. And uh, I remember staying up nights and, and going through code. So, boom, I got that right away. Yeah. And then, you know, from the business operation uh, perspective as well. So that was a great example. You know, I, I, could, picture, I could picture myself either traveling or one of my children uh, maybe on a plane or somebody I'm waiting for or the limo driver. That was a great example. Um, so how, I mean, how do you um, aggregate all this information? What, what type of methodologies do you use to uh, get all this information? Is it IOT? Are, are you integrated to IOT devices? You know, it, it's a great question. There's a lot of talk about IOT today. What I would say is, um, for us, how we, how we aggregate the information is we have uh, an agent that people deploy. Um, and so we're collecting real-time information, or if it's on a mobile device, it's uh, deployed in the mobile app. Uh, and the nice thing about that is that, like, for example, if you're looking at mobile information, you can actually see, you know, how is the application performing dependent on what iOS it's running on or what version of the software. Because one of the problems with mobile devices is you might fix the application, but if somebody hasn't deployed that from the app store and updated their app, and I'm guilty, <laughs> my apps are not always updated. I hate <laughs> updating because something always breaks. <laughs> Yeah, but then you know that when people are having problems, is that because they're not running the latest software or, you know, where is the problem happening? So we collect real-time information. Um, we have some of the best engineers on the planet because we have a rather large cloud. And what that has required is that we've refactored and rethought through how do we actually digest the information? How do we actually store it? What is the structure around the data shards? How do we think about um, really just the, the processing and the cues and the resiliency? And, you know, if there is an issue with, um, you know, connectivity, you know, how do we ensure it's just data lag, not data loss? Um, so there's a tremendous amount that's gone in. And, and quite frankly, it's one of those areas where we're always having to reinvent ourselves because the volume of data is such that there's very few people who've seen it. And at the same time, the technology is always evolving as well. So we test out new and different types of databases all the time. We test out just different ways to think through how do we most efficiently do that? Because the other thing that's important is real time. Um, part of the value is it's the real time information. It's not the batch processing of yesteryear. <laughs> Um, so it's, it's not easy and it's, um, to me, fascinating to see how fast that market moves. But I do think it's part of the pace of the market is really driven by all the open source that we now buy into as a community. So Google does a lot that's open source. Facebook does a lot that's open source. And being able to tap into these accelerated technology developments from clouds at mass has been really powerful for us. How so? Well, because what's happening is we're not having to start from scratch. Because as I mentioned, the, what's interesting is data processing and analytics used to be done in a very decentralized way. So I'd have my little data center, you would have yours, somebody else would have theirs, and you would do everything on-prem with a, a somewhat small amount of data. But to your point, you know, with the Internet of Things, and, and, and for us, the Internet of Things is, you know, we've got servers and mobile devices and, you know, browsers who are all talking to us. Those are our things. They're creating trillions of data points. And so the volume that has to get processed um, and the fact that it's not sitting in the, you know, side room of each of our customers requires that we think very carefully around how does it get processed? How does it get stored? How do you build in resiliency? How do you scale up, scale down? And the fact that Google and Facebook have operated clouds at such enormous scale and have 
some of the brightest minds on the planet thinking through how do you evolve technology to do that, to be able to tap into some of those technologies um, and leverage them um, to help us scale our own cloud has just been great. This is all fascinating technology. You know, one interesting thing about cloud. So I recently saw a, a uh, diagram that showed the evolution of IoT, Internet of Things, right? We think of Internet of Things as futuristic little robots connected to one another <laughs> over the world. Um, and, and by the way, to that point as well about cloud. So many times when I talk to people about cloud, um, and I say, you know, if you think about it, we've been using cloud since the early 1900s when the phone was invented. I mean, do you have a phone company in your basement? No. So technically, the phone has always been in the cloud. So I saw something this morning about IoT, the Internet of Things, that we've actually been using IoT since 1974. The ATM <laughs> machine is the earliest form of IoT, you know, and yeah device that's connected on the internet, which, which was a phone line connected to a modem back then. Uh, but that's really what it is. It's just new application. Yeah, it's new application and it's new scale. And, and for me, I mean, I think the example you gave is a great one is that we tend to get really almost freaked out sometimes about these new technologies. And one of the things, um, you know, that people bring up, they'll be like, Oh, well, you know, cloud, well, you know, it's not secure. And I'm worried about the security of, you know, things in the cloud. And the analogy that I always use is it's, you know, it's very similar to the difference between an airline and a car in the sense that if there's an airline crash and a hundred people die, which is incredibly traumatic. We all hear about it. It's all on the news. It's all the rage. It's, it's the thing. I'm like, oh my God, that's really, really horrible. I'm really scared. I'm never going to fly again. Yeah. There are more car accidents in a single state if you live in a state of California where 100 people die every day. And yet we don't hear about it because it's in small little pieces and it's not the headline news. And so for some reason, it doesn't feel as scary and we still get in our car every day. And I bring up that analogy because... The airlines, you know, they're, they're dealing with much larger masses with a much higher price if something goes wrong. So knock on wood, we don't have a lot of airplane crashes because a tremendous amount gets invested into the safety and security, not just of how the aircraft are built, but how they fly in the skies and the rules and the controls and the regulations and all that goes on. And when I look at the cloud, it's a similar thing. I know many people who've run data centers and we all like to think our data centers are brilliant and they're safe and they're secure, but we don't have the same resource, nor do we have the same cost to our business if something goes wrong. And so I actually feel that the security in the cloud is, is better on average than the security in anyone's given data center because they've got more at risk. They've got more economies of scale. They've got better people who that is their job day in, day out to do. Now, what I will say is the two things that have shifted for us, whether you're in the cloud or not, first is that you have more important data there. So you're taking a lot of data that used to sit in the file cabinet that used to be in the patient write-up reports and you're putting it in the cloud. So the value of what that data is is higher. It makes it more interesting for bad actors to go after it. The second thing is, just like our technology is advancing that's allowing us to create all these wonderful things that make us more connected and more efficient, those bad actors have those same tools and they're innovating and they're getting more creative. So to me, the thing on security is, is it more secure, less secure? I actually think it's probably more secure, but the security threats for all of us are just higher because what's at risk is worth more. And so to me, it is important for us to think about how do we, how do we protect the perimeter? How do we use big data analytics to understand when things that are out of the norm are happening? We can't just rely on people to do all the kind of testing that everything's secure, but how do we leverage technology in innovative ways to help us, like I said, protect the perimeter, identify the bad actions before they happen or when they're happening so that we can mitigate quickly. And that's another thing that people don't typically understand is most of these cyber attacks, they go on for months. It's, you know, they, they get into a system, they get a set of credentials, they move over here, they go over there. They're in your systems for a long time. And so the, the opportunity to catch them before something bad happens 
it's a little bit like your credit card. When somebody steals your credit card, usually they'll try a dollar transaction or 23 cent transaction. Yeah, if you're looking. Yeah, they kind of step it up to see, are they gonna catch me before they go in for the kill? Cybersecurity oftentimes is the same way. So um, I think it's definitely important to think about, but I don't feel that it's something that should stop you from taking advantage of modern day technology. You know, there are several points that I love about what you said, and one of them is economies of scale, because the economies of scale is what enables the cloud providers, the, the big data centers to provide that kind of security and not just security in terms of data security, but in terms of disaster recovery that your business needs. So if you're a small business, right? What are you going to need in the event of a disaster? If we have a flood or, or an earthquake and your company is out of business for a day because you can't get into the office because your office is out of power, uh, you need gen power generation. What happens when people can't get to their files because they can't get into the office? So you have all these different components that go into have running a secure and stable business. So if your, if your data center is completely destroyed by a fire or God knows what, right? There are a million other data centers around the world to pick up that load, but you personally can't afford that. And that's where the economies of scale comes to play. Yeah. Right? Well, and, and I go back to the example you gave with the telco companies. You know, no independent business had enough money to put cabling underneath the ocean and to do all these other things that, you know, collectively we all pay a little bit and we get to benefit from that infrastructure. So I do think um, when we're talking about the scale that we're talking about, that you can get a lot more when you aggregate things up. Um, and you can let somebody else do all of that and focus on what really differentiates. Yeah. Now, to the business owner that may think, you know what, this sounds great, but I'm not interested because I don't want to make myself vulnerable. Keep in mind that your competitors are leveraging the benefits of the latest in technology and they're able to get ahead, whether it's to streamline their operations or save costs and you know, so by not embracing the cloud, you're at a disadvantage. So whether you like it or not, you've, you've got to join the party. <laughs> totally agree. Totally agree. So, you know, as, as, as uh, somebody that's been very active in the CIO community uh, for quite some time, where do you see the direction of the cloud going? Yeah, that's a great question. And I believe um, the cloud is just at the infancy of the impact it will have. And what I mean by that is, similar to many new technologies, we've, we've started using the cloud to basically make the stuff we do today more efficient, less costly. So the initial business cases around the cloud are, let's put CRM in the cloud. Let's let somebody else run that application. They can do it on their stack. I don't have to rack and stack servers. That's all great. But ultimately, to me, if I look at the the true impact that the cloud's gonna have on our community. Um, first and foremost is it's enabling innovation to happen at a more rapid pace. And what I mean by that is, I'm a bit biased because I live in Silicon Valley, um, but if you wanna start a company today, you don't have to raise that much money because you can access so much of what you need leveraging the cloud. You can get all these different what we're doing right now. I'm exactly. in New York and you're in San Francisco. Yeah. I mean, you just, and, and there are all these services that will help you get so much of what you need. So the cost of innovation of starting new businesses has gone way down. And so you can now focus on things that really move the ball forward. So that's one. The second is that it's fundamentally changing the, um, the way that we do business. And what I mean by that is I used to be at VMware and, and we ran a big on-prem business and you have perpetual licensed software. And what I've realized in working at New Relic, which is all cloud-based, all subscription-based, is there's, there's different things that are important. There's this concept of you know, annual recurring revenue. You earn your customer every day. And so it's created a whole new marketplace of people called customer success reps people who their job is to make sure that you're happy every day. Cause if you're not, you didn't buy a perpetual license. You pay for what you have every day. You're not happy. You churn. I go out of business. 
So, so it's changing that. It's changing the financial metrics that are important. So I have annual recurring revenue. I have a different revenue stream that's, that's very different for the street to understand and predict, but actually allows me to make better long-term decisions because I'm not as impacted on a P&L perspective from did I make that big deal or not. Because I, I get to recognize this annual recurring revenue every year, so long as you don't leave me. Um, so there's there's a, a new way of selling. It's called land and expand. So rather, I think it's really what's led to a lot of the decentralization of technology. Because before, if you wanted to buy Siebel, you had to sign this really big dollar contract. Yeah. You know, all of a sudden now, I want to buy smart CRM. You know, I swipe a credit card, I pay twenty five dollars a month. And then my sales team grows from five to 500. All of a sudden I'm paying a lot more than $25, but I was able to, from, from a smart CRM perspective, I was able to come in, establish a beachhead and grow it very organically. So sales motions are changing. So businesses are, are, are thinking very differently and technology is getting in the hands of the people who want to buy it for business problems versus centralized IT. The final thing that I'd say, so we've talked about the innovation, we've talked about the business operations impact. The final thing is it's creating new business models. And quite frankly, in my mind, creating a whole new approach to the workforce. So if you look at, you know, the classic examples are Uber, Lyft, Airbnb. Um, but just the other day, I was talking to a startup that's creating, you know, kind of a freelance marketplace for tech support. They go out and they say, hey, who are your power users, New Relic? Well, these are your power users. Well, do you want to have them solve some of your tech support problems? And we'll pay them for the number of problems they solve. They can work when they want, and they don't have to work if they don't want. And so you can have burst capacity of experts. That ability to create a marketplace, whether you're Uber, Lyft, and trying to get people from point A to point B, you're Airbnb, and you're trying to give people more options to find accommodations in different cities, you're trying to do tech support, I can do that for code development. I now have an infrastructure that allows me to create marketplaces efficiently. And if you add blockchain, this whole distributed network on top of that, all of a sudden, the, the possibilities are endless in terms of how we can rethink the business models that we're in. So for me, cloud up to now has been interesting in driving efficiency and cost effectiveness and how we do what we've done for the last 10, 20 years. But I think the real change is on the horizon. That is so fascinating. What I love about what you say is basically it's about eliminating waste and paying for what you need. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and, it's, and it's the perfect enabler. I know from my perspective, starting a small business, in, in terms of my infrastructure, so I needed a phone. Well, we got the cloud. You get a couple subscriptions for a few people. Email, well, you don't have to buy an exchange server anymore. You just go, uh, you know, go online, $6 a month, you got email. So to your CRM, I did the same thing. Twenty, I think it was 20 or $25 a month, I got a CRM. And we have all, all the technology, the cloud conferencing that we're using right now is only about $15 a month. So, you know, there you go. You have all the tools that you need. And I, you know, I love the term that you used, that burst. Um, I forgot how you phrased it, but uh, being able to burst, because that's a term that's used for clouds, but you could do that for manpower and resources as well. So yeah. that's a great explanation. So Yvonne, how did you get into all this? <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I'd like to take credit for it, um, but I'd say, to be fair, I got lucky. And, and what I mean by that, and, and, and this will get into some of my, my, my passion, um, when I was in college, I had a great calculus professor, um, just phenomenal guy, and he asked me if I would take his programming class. And I was like, what's that? Um, and to put this in context, this is back in the 80s, and I had an eight-line memory typewriter. Um, you know, you hand-wrote reports or you typed them on the things that actually made noise. Uh, and, and I was like, programming, what's that? And I ended up taking his Pascal class, and I was like, this is really cool. And I took Fortran, then I took Assembler, and I was like, wow, I really like this. This is really interesting and creative and, and new. And so that got me started in a career at Accenture as a software engineer back in um, the late 80s, early 90s. And what, what language were you writing in? Well, at, when I graduated, I got to go off to uh, St. Charles on the yellow bus and learn COBOL. 
Okay. So I, I programmed on AS400. I can program on mainframes. <laughs> I'm one of a dying breed. Um, we, uh, we moved on to uh, C++. Okay. Um, I was around when client server was cool. We've kind of gone back to that uh, in concept, to, you know, distributed computing. Uh, GUI design was all the rage, but, uh, but I, I was fortunate in terms of where I ended up that I always had people um, who kind of saw potential in me. I was always curious. I, I will give myself credit that I was always very curious, wanted to learn new things, uh, and I'd work very hard. I don't, I, I can't say that I actually saw the same potential or even knew where to go. And that's where I think sponsorship and mentorship is really important. And I was fortunate who, to have people who saw potential in me, who saw how hard I worked and who would pull me in different directions. And so that is how I ended up kind of moving around Accenture Eventually, a career coach said, do you want to be a consultant forever? And I was like, oh, God, no. She's like, well, it's all you've done since, uh, since you graduated from college, and that's been 17 years. <laughs> so maybe you should do something else. Um, so I went to go work for one of my clients, VMware, which was an amazing ride. And when I was there, I had you know, people say, hey, why don't you take on this business? Why don't you take on that business? And so you know, it's just been... Um, for me, I think working hard, being curious, and getting lucky. <laughs> yeah, I, w I would say that it's not necessarily luck. It's more of that you, ha you were open to possibilities. So when you saw something, you jumped on it. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and that's that's really what it what it's like. Uh, you know, being a successful entrepreneur for people uh, in business because there's there's so many opportunities out there, and you just have to have your mind open to possibilities. Um, so that's what you know I love about your story. So, you know, so you mentioned that uh, you 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 met with a career counselor and made a decision to change your. Uh, your course from being a consultant, what was that decision? You know, it, it's interesting. So I, I always loved school and I love school back to the point of being curious um, because I got to try new things. And if you tried something you liked, you could do more of it. And if you tried something you didn't like, you just stopped taking those types of classes. <laughs> um, and consulting to me was very much the same way. Um, you know, so if you worked for a client, you liked them, you kept working for them, or if you worked in a particular subject matter area. But what was interesting over time is I would say the difference between being a consultant and being an executive in a company is a bit the difference between renting an apartment and owning a house. And that being that when you rent an apartment, you're more footloose and fancy free. You get to, you know, live in the really nice apartments all the time. <laughs> But if you want to hang something on the wall or repaint it, you need permission. They don't always do it. And in going to um, an executive role, I really got to own the house. You don't move around as much. You kind of have what you have. Um, but you get the opportunity to invest in the plumbing and the electricity, which translates into the teams and the processes by which you run. And you get the satisfaction of, not just having the brilliant idea. So for the majority of my consulting career, I was a strategy consultant. Um, I could dream up big, you know, big, great creative solutions to hard problems. But then I'd always wait for my client to either be successful or not with it. And some of the times they didn't even try. Some of the times they tried and failed. And occasionally they got it right. And I just thought my hit rate should be higher. So now I got to do it myself. And it was so rewarding for me personally to not only be able to think up the big ideas, but then to be able to pull together a team of people, um, grow with them, and really see, do those ideas work or course correct along the way? That's, that's a perspective I, I never realized. Um, you know, entrepreneurship is glorified these days, right? Yeah. So I really appreciate the perspective from the other side about being in a leadership role in a large corporation can give you certain uh, certain sense of fulfillment um, that you can't really get by being uh, an entrepreneur. Yeah, no, they're all very different. They're, and they're all great. And to me, what I always tell people is, um, don't go after something because somebody tells you it's gonna be great or you should. Like figure out who you really are at this point in your life 
um, I wouldn't change my consulting experience for the world. I had an amazing time. I learned a ton. I got to go to incredible places and work on incredible problems. Um, but I get headhunted all the time for consulting gigs to run different services businesses. And I'm like, I did that. I'm done. <laughs> I'm on to the next thing. So it's just important to know what makes you happy at what point in time. And that's really the key to it, you know, to go where your heart draws you. Yeah. Nice. So Yvonne, as you were building your career, what were some of the challenges you faced, some of the ups and downs, and how did you get through it? Yeah, it's, you know, it's funny. And I tell people all the time, like, um, I have a great story today, a really coherent, amazing story that shows I was brilliant at a very early age <laughs> to assemble a blend of business and technology capabilities that make me the perfect CIO in today's day and age. Um, but anybody who's, who's older will tell you that it was never that straight a line getting from where you started to where you are. Right. Uh, and you're right. There are a lot of ups and downs. You know, I characterize mine um, in, a, in a couple milestone learnings. One was I worked incredibly hard when I was at Accenture and I did a really good job. Um, I was always an early promote. I was um, engaged and, and, and tons of fun. But I did end up at one point in my career um, on the wrong side of some politics that I didn't even know I was part of and ended up on a list to get laid off. Mm -hmm. And I found out about it. And it didn't happen. But even though it didn't happen, I remember the feeling of betrayal. Here was a company I'd given, you know, 14 years of my life to, that, that somebody who I didn't even really know was going to have the power to put me out of a job for what I thought were very unfair reasons. And it was the light bulb that went off in my head, which was companies, once they get beyond, I would say, 25 people and maybe even smaller are going to do what's best for the company. That's inherently what they do. And I think for many of us, we might romanticize our relationship with an organization um, in a way that, that actually is at a disadvantage to us. And what I mean by that is I've always coached people since then and, and coached myself that I, I'm very loyal. I'll give my heart and soul to any job I'm doing, but not blindly knowing that at the end of the day, I need to do what's right for me and my family. And if what's right for me and my family is to go do something different or to go take a different job, um, I'll go do that now. It's not that, you know, I'm so indebted to any one company. I'll always do whatever they ask of me because the inverse isn't true either. And so that was one really powerful lesson for me, which is, at any point in time, the business might have to make a decision that's not in my best advantage. And that's okay. That doesn't mean they don't like me. That doesn't mean they're bad. It just means that, yeah, I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And that's okay. Um, but but to, not, to not be naive about it. So that was one. The second one um, really was a good lesson on the, the diversity front, which I have a lot of passion around. Um, but I've been a successful executive and at the prompting of some of my peers um, asked for a larger job. And my boss, who was one of my biggest sponsors and mentors, looked at me and said, you know, I know you would do an amazing job, but you already work so hard and you have three young children. And I looked at them and I'm like, would you say that to anybody else on your staff? And he's like, no. And they were all men. He's like, no, but I care about you more as a mother than I do an employee. Now, there's part of me that's like, oh my God, that's so touching. That is so lovely that we have such a strong relationship that you care so much about me personally. But then there's another part of me is like, well, wait a second. I'm a grown woman. I'm a damn good mother. And now if you don't give me the job, since you told me I'm qualified, <laughs> I'm going to quit. <laughs> and, and, and what's interesting, he did give me the job to his credit. I did a great job. My children still love me. Um, but what's interesting is, and I think this is true for many folks, if he would have not been honest, if he would have just said, I'm not giving it to you, I would have assumed it was me. I would have assumed I don't have the right skills. I haven't been here long enough. I haven't done this. Um, and so I, I deeply appreciate the honesty and us being able to have the dialogue, but it really heightened my sensitivity that 
people with the best of intent, people who can be your best sponsors are biased by their own perception of the net normal. And when you don't fit the mold of the net normal, it can be harder. And so you just need to be aware of, you know, that situations might be seen differently by different people. So how do you present yourself? How do you fight for what matters? How do you help educate people? Because it's typically not ill intent. Occasionally it is. But 99% of the time, in my experience, people aren't trying to be biased. They're not trying to do bad things. It's just who we are. It's Mother Nature. You know, Stephen Covey in his book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, talks about different paradigms that people have. And they're just reacting to their paradigm of the world. Yeah. So, Yvonne, what keeps you motivated? It's, um, it's interesting. I, I would say it's been different in different parts of my life. So when I was, hindsight's always 2020, but what I've realized after a lot of introspection is in my early life, um, I had many good things to my childhood, but I had an alcoholic, abusive stepfather. And so quite frankly, what I realized in hindsight, what motivated me when I was very young was um, running away and being able to be completely independent. So I was very focused at a very young age. I ended up graduating high school a year early, went to college when I was 16. And it's not because I was brilliant. It was because I was so focused on getting out of the house and being able to be on my own and create my own safe space. And I developed a huge degree of self value out of how well I did in school and how well I did at work. And so I'd say what motivated me was feeding that need to feel good about myself was feeding a need to do well and, and advance because that's where I developed my self-worth. Um, having had a lot of great coaches, mentors, friends, now um, I'm motivated in, a, in what I believe is a much more positive way, <laughs> which is... Um, one, I have a very different scorecard by which I feel my own self-worth. Um, that's much more balanced across how do I feel physically, how do I feel in my family life, in my work life, in my impact in the world. And what motivates me um, really goes back to my, my, my godmother's husband passed away, I want to say maybe seven years ago now. And the father said something that, that has stuck with me ever since that day. He said... I want you all to look around the room. All of you are here, not because of how much money Doug made, not because of how many courses he taught. He was a professor at Stanford. You're here because he touched you in a way that was meaningful. And what I realized from that moment, and I've carried very deeply with me, what matters in life is not how much money I make, not how many titles I have or any of that. What matters is, how many people do I touch? How many people are going to live their life some way happier, having bigger impacts um, because of something I said or did? And, and that's what keeps me at it. That's beautiful. Gary Vaynerchuk talks about that all the time. It's, it's your legacy that yeah. uh, you're leaving over. Um, what advice would you give to all those entrepreneurs that are building their businesses? And you know, there's a statistic that most small businesses fail within the first year. Where, where do entrepreneurs go wrong? Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I, I think there's two parts to the answer. Um, I had the, the, the great opportunity to go to Nigeria of all places on a tech tour. And when I was first invited, I was like, tech tour in Nigeria, hmm, doesn't quite sync up. But the beauty of technology is there's actually a thriving technical um, community of entrepreneurs and angel investors in Africa really looking to leapfrog and solve some really hard problems in new and creative ways with technology. But what struck me there was a really important perspective to have when you're an entrepreneur, which is what are you in it for? For some of these entrepreneurs, they're literally in it to create what I would call a lifestyle business, enough money 
that they can raise themselves one bar in society, that they can ensure they have food on their table and the table of their family and friends. And that's all they really aspire to. And there's a lot of businesses you can set up like that. Um, and if those are your aspirations, you can be wildly successful. Um, it's very different when you have the ambition to change the world on a more massive scale or to, you know, create a company that one day goes public or make millions and billions of dollars. Um, so I think the first thing you have to figure out is what am I creating a business for? What does success look like for me as an entrepreneur? Um, and get really clear on that and really ask yourself um, if that's what success looks like. Is that really what I want to go do? Do I want to do what it takes to get there? And what I found when I was in business school is that a lot of people wanted to go into investment banking or consulting because they thought they'd make a lot of money. And having been a consultant before I went to business school and after, I'm like, that's a stupid reason to go into consulting. And the people who did it for the money ended up leaving quite quickly. And same thing with iBankers, or they were miserable. And to your point about entrepreneurship being hot, it's like now everybody wants to be an entrepreneur because everybody's going to be the next, you know, you know billion dollar unicorn. Um, but, but you can't go into it for those superficial reasons. You have to go into it because you truly believe in the impact you're going to have. You're clear on the success factors. Um, and if you do it for those reasons, I, I think you can be a lot more successful. But the, the other things that I think it's important to get right um, once you've settled on the vision and the values of what you're trying to do, hiring. Um, if you're going to hire people to help you get it all right, you just have to be clear on um, who you need to bring on the team. And the first couple of people, probably the most important thing is values alignment, that you're at the same purpose and the same values. But when you start getting beyond the first few, you're going to have to hire people who have different skills than you not the same skills. And you're going to, I believe, be best off hiring more diverse people. And it's hard to hire diverse people um, by yourself. And I say that because one of my lessons when I went to VMware, I'd interview people, I'd been a strategy consultant for so long, I'd interview people and I always thought they were good or bad based on did they have the ability to break down a problem in a coherent way um, and have an executive level discussion on it. And if they could do those things, I thought they were brilliant. And if they couldn't, I thought they were no good. And what I started to learn was not everybody has to be brilliant at those two things. And being brilliant at those two things is what I'm brilliant at. So I probably need people who are brilliant at other things. So I'd say hiring is really important and just being in touch with what's most important when and getting help to get the right set of people. And then the last thing I'd say is, um, I see this all too often, again, Silicon Valley bias, but people who are trying to use amenities to make up for value and purpose. Um, people do really well when they feel that they're adding value and that they believe in the vision that you're all driving towards. Um, all the free food, all the, you know, gyms, all the foosball tables, none of that really matters. Like they're nice, <laughs> but, but they don't make up for the rest. And I see a lot of companies spending way too much money on these perks that ultimately, if you just focus on having a good vision that people buy into and they have jobs where they understand the value that they're giving every day and the impact it's having, that's 99.9% .9 of what people go to work for. You know, that, that reminds me of something that Simon Sinek likes talking about is, is the why. Sell people on why you're doing things. And if you got them sold on your why, on your belief, you're already there. Totally. Great. Um, Yvonne, where are you looking to take this career? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I ask myself that question all the time. There's a couple different avenues that I have a lot of interest in that I've started to go down. Um, I do love being in an operating role. I plan to continue to do that for, for quite a while. Um, but there are elements of consulting that I miss, and I do find it really important to stay in touch with what's going on around me. And so there's an avenue that I'm developing around doing more board work. So I'm on the board of a Series A company, Bidium. I just joined the board of a, a new startup that's uh, doing work in Nigeria on delivering pharmaceuticals uh, in a quality and integrity way, leveraging technology to hospitals and pharmacies. 
Um, so I'm continuing to do some board work, uh, both to give back some of the knowledge that I've been blessed to get, um, but also to keep me young and fresh and in touch with, you know, what it is to be agile and small and hungry. Um, another thing I care a lot about is diversity. And so I uh, sit on the board at Harvey Mudd College, which is a, a small, uh, uh, it's one of the Claremont Colleges. It's about an 800 uh, student STEM university here in California, uh, who's done a lot on diversity. And I uh, also sit on the board of an organization called the Athena Alliance, which is focused on getting more women on both private and public company boards. And to me, really ensuring that people of all types of backgrounds and all types of makeups have an equal opportunity to contribute at their highest potential is important to me personally from an ethical standpoint. Um, but also as a business person, I believe in today's day and age, if you're not bringing diverse perspectives to the table, you're not gonna, you're not gonna win. Um, I mean, the, my favorite picture is, uh, I saw it on Twitter the other day, it's like, you know, a rhinoceros with a big horn. It's like, well, what? every painting he, he paints has this big horn in it. And it's like, well, gosh, if he had somebody else paint the picture, he might realize the horn is on him. It's not in the landscape. Um, but, but you need different perspectives. You need different skills. And, uh, you know, everybody should have a chance to play those roles. So that's the other big area of passion that, that I'm doing more and more in. I could definitely feel that passion as you're talking. And what I want the listeners to understand is that you, you've got your hands in so many different plates and yet you give everybody your all how do you how do you manage all that um i'd say it's a couple things um one is i i used to be a workaholic um for the vast majority of my career and i've really in the last 10 years taken a step back from that and so i i am much more balanced and it allows me actually to get a lot more done so i try to get a full night's sleep i do yoga i um, run or go to the gym every day just to clear my mind. It's when I do my best thinking. And that's when I sort out, I don't respond to all my emails, but I respond to the most important ones because I can think about what they are. Um, so what is that? The other thing is um, there's a red thread. Everything I do reinforces the other things that I do. So I work in technology. I'm a CIO. I advise to tech companies, which keeps me relevant in my job. And I'm also able to give back. I care a tremendous amount of diversity. Um, but the schools and the educations I, that uh, institutions I work with are also ones that we recruit from. So I look for things that are reinforcing that are actually additive and it's one plus one plus one is 10 um, versus trying to get two spread across a bunch of different things. Um, Cause that I would fail at. So I look for that synergy. I look for that holistic whole. Yeah. That synergy. Yeah, that's beautiful. And so I just learned something. So thank you. <laughs> um, if you could turn back the clock, let's say 12 months, would there be anything different that you do? In 12 months? Um, probably not. Uh, I, I spend most of my time in life looking forward, not back. And I would say even the things in my life that haven't been great at the time, I've learned a lot from, but, but if I look more, more broadly across my career and my life, uh, the one thing I'd say I do differently is I take more risk. And uh, the, the short story I'll give you on that is both of my career changes from Accenture to VMware and VMware to New Relic were very similar storylines. You know, somebody would say, you know, I'd say, hey, well, I don't wanna be a consultant forever. Like, oh, you should go get an industry job. Well, I can't do that. Why not? Well, I'm a single mom. I make lots of money. I've been here forever. And they're like, well, why do you think you couldn't get that somewhere else? I'm like, I don't know. I just don't think I could. <laughs> they're like, well, you should try that. And I'm like, well, what if it doesn't work? Well, then couldn't you always go back? Yeah, I guess I could. <laughs> um, and the same thing when I left VMware to go to New Relic, I wanted to get on some smaller company boards. And, and one of my friends said, well, I'd never put you on, a, on my board. He's like, you're one of the smartest people I know, but you don't know anything about a small company. Why don't you go work at one? I'm like, oh, I can't do that. I'm a single mom. I got three kids. I have all this and make all this money. Like, I, it'd be too risky. And he's like, why is it risky? He's like, you go do it. It doesn't work. And they're not going to take you back. He's like, you can get a job at any of the large companies. I'm like, you know what? You're right. I could. 
And so to me, I was fortunate. I had people at points in my life who pushed me. But if I look more broadly, there were probably other opportunities that I could have taken more risk than I did. Um, so that's probably the one thing I do Beautiful. That's a great, a great explanation. And it also drives home about doing things because you feel drawn towards it and not make fear-based decisions. Yeah, definitely. So we have time for one question from the audience. I think we actually covered this in part during our discussion. So Mark Dressner is the CEO of a company called Office Evolution. That's a uh, shared co-working space facility in Hackensack, New Jersey. So Mark asks, what are the biggest risks to the growth of cloud technology? And he says, cybersecurity and ownership of data seems to be ongoing concerns. And are there others? Yeah, you know, so we did touch on it a little bit. What I would say is that, um, and you read data on it all the time, and, and you've mentioned it during the course of this discussion, People need to embrace new technologies and do things differently or they'll be replaced. And so to me, um, cloud, it's not, it's not when are you going to use cloud? It's, um, you know, everybody's going to use cloud. It's how are you going to use it to your best advantage? And how do you deal with the different trade-offs in doing a cloud solution versus not? And so from my standpoint, if you're still debating, you know, should I use the cloud or not, because I'm afraid about security and the, the data implications, you know, unless you're, you know, kind of what I said, like a lifestyle business, there's probably somebody who's going to be able to come along and do what you're doing more efficiently at scale more fast, more, more quickly. Um, so what I would say is to me, yes, cybersecurity is important um, So be smart about it but it's not a reason to not do the cloud. Um, data BI, um, for us here at New Relic, I'm building out a data BI platform underneath our SaaS apps and our clouds so that I can do 360 analysis, machine learning AI in my control historically. Um, there's other third party uh, solutions popping up over Silicon Valley all the time that allow you to do data and BI in the cloud. And ultimately, the most interesting machine learning and artificial intelligence is likely going to require the scale and compute capacity of what can live in the cloud that you can't independently afford. So I think the question is, how can you most quickly get into and take advantage of the cloud in safe ways? Um, and, you know, for those people who don't, I think it's going to limit their growth opportunity over time. Totally agree to that. Absolutely. Uh, Yvonne, who would be a perfect client for New Relic? Oh, we have so many. Um, what I would say is uh, any and everybody who's developing software can benefit from New Relic. And you can go to the New Relic website and you can try our software. Um, for us, we're focused more and more on the enterprise um, because a lot of these companies, you know, back to having impacts, we want to help partner with companies to really expand and amplify their impact around the world. And for many of them, that's moving from traditional business to more digitized business. So we work with companies um, of all sizes from individual developers all the way through to Fortune 100. Fantastic. So Yvonne, I know you're a busy guest. I'm going to let you go in just a moment. Uh, but just before we do, how do people connect with yeah. you? Um, so with New Relic, as I mentioned, there's obviously newrelic.com. For me personally, I'm on LinkedIn. I occasionally blog, not as much as I'd like, but I try. Um, and I'm on Twitter at uh, YTechData. Um, and I'm speaking at a couple conferences out here on the West. So that's probably the best way. <laughs> Great. We'll put that in the show notes so people can just click on it and find you. Right. Awesome. Yvonne, do you have any parting words of wisdom you'd like to leave the audience with? Yeah, I, um, it's, it's been great talking with you. And I think even as we've gone through the questions, it's part of why I love having these conversations is it's that moment of reflection. I'm like, why do I do this? And what does matter? And what do I think? Um, but to me, I think the, the parting word of reflection is something that you and I spoke a lot about, which is um, take the time to figure out what really motivates you not what you think should motivate you, but really what does motivate you um, and set your own scorecard. I think too often in my life, um, I was measuring myself by other people's measuring sticks. And part of what keeps me happy is the fact that 
um, I always tell people I can do it all. You know, I am a mom, I am a successful executive, um, I am in good health, and it's because I do it all according to my rules. Um, if you measured how great a mother I am compared to somebody who's a stay-at-home mom, we do different things, but it doesn't make one good and one bad. Um, and I check with my kids, like I said, they say I'm a great mother, so I'm gonna go with that. <laughs> you must be doing something right. <laughs> Great. Well, Yvonne, thank you so much for your time and sharing your wisdom and joining us. And I really enjoyed having you. Thank you. It's been wonderful. Have a great one.